This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Stephen Siegel, and I'll be speaking today with my guest, Dr. Sarah J. Young. Sarah J. Young has a new book. It's called Writing Resistance, Revolutionary Memoirs of Schlüsselberg Prison, published by UCL Press, University College London in 2021. Thanks so much, Sarah, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. So a little about our author today, Dr. Sarah J. Young is Associate Professor of Russian at University College London, where she teaches 19th and 20th century Russian literature culture, and thought. She previously taught at the University of Toronto and the University of Nottingham. A Dostoevsky specialist, her interests in the ethics of narration and the construction of literary space led her to current research, uh, this current research project, which focuses on Russian prison and exile writing. So that's what we'll be talking about today in Writing Resistance. And I'd just like to lead off, as as I do with really almost all of my authors, to ask you about your motivation for this project. What what got you interested in in the topic, if it's Dostoevsky or or Solzhenitsyn or or something? I I love origin stories. It started out with Solzhenitsyn, really, um, and seeing a copy of the Gulag Archipelago on my parents' bookshelf when I was a kid, before I could speak Russian, before I'd even started learning Russian. Uh, it wasn't something I would have expected to find on my parents' bookshelves, although their, their, their library was pretty varied. Um, but it sort of sparked an interest in that topic. I suppose this was also about the same time that Anatoly Marchenko was in the news for his hunger strike and death. Uh, and Irina Ratoshinskaya was uh, in the news when she was in prison. So in sort of in, in the sort of beginning of the Glasnost period, when I was thinking, started thinking about Russia, started thinking about Russian literature, and I was also reading Gorgol Dostoevsky at the time, and um, coming across um, contemporary and recent history about Russian prison and the writing connected with that sort of started a long-term interest in the in the whole subject and then that just grew um as I sort of became a Dostoevsky scholar I sort of began to realize that for me Notes from the House of the Dead is really a fundamental text in it changed so much in his outlook it changed his writing as well I think and so really sort of moving from there I sort of I was looking on the one hand at the Gulag, on the other hand at Dostoevsky, and everything sort of coalesced in this subject area. 
Yeah, I, and I think about a lot of those um, cl- classics, classic I, I wonder if Vera Figner also played a part in this, or if you could maybe talk about Memoirs of a Revolutionist. I mean, this is sort of the classic that I get to assign to undergraduates. Um, <laughs> is is that is that sort of a measure for you when you were beginning to kind of choose the your writers? I think I, I actually came to Vera Figner somewhat later, and um, in a in a sort of from coming from the opposite direction. I I first became very much aware of her as a writer from reading Yevgenia Ginsberg's memoirs in, uh, Into the Whirlwind. And when she's in solitary confinement um, in the 1930s, uh, she she mentions Vera Figma's memoir several times and sees that as a real touchstone for her own behaviour um, in, 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 in prison and her own survival. And so I went to Figma via Ginsberg and very much sort of with a growing awareness of how one group of, of um, prison inmates in Russia uh, in their memoirs always describes looking back to the previous generations and their incarceration mm. and how they survived it and how they wrote about it. So Figma's memoirs became really important in that respect as a sort of, uh, you know, in a, in a way sort of in tandem with Dostoevsky's that, that the writers, the, the survivors of the Gulag in the 20th century look back to their predecessors in the 19th as a models to how to write about this subject and you know, Figner became so important in that it's a it's an extraordinary sort of rich mm. memoir I mean I, I also now assign it for my students as part of you know, looking at looking at the populists uh, for my Russian thought course she you know she's one of the memoirists who, who sort of um, more broadly looks at you know, her career as a, as a revolutionary and you know, there's, there's, there's some extraordinary analysis of what's wrong with the czarist system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And and I have a lot of questions about radicals and, and populists and, and the trials. I, I guess my next question for you is, is to introduce the fortress. So perhaps you could tell our listeners here on New Books Network, a little bit about the Schlüsselberg Fortress. When was it built? And then what period in its history are you covering? Okay, so actually might need to consult a few notes here. The, the fortress is you know, on Lake Ladoga, it's just outside St. Petersburg. It's been there sort of uh, um, since 1323, when the original Rush, uh, wooden fortress was built. And the, the, the island that the fortress is on, the island basically sort of, you know, the, the fortress covers the entire island. And that's changed hands several times over a couple of hundred years. And then, in fact, over 400 years, I think, with the the stone fortress that we know today being built in the late 15th century under the Novgorod Republic. The final capture by Russia uh, took place under Peter the Great uh, in 1702, and the original original name, Ariechov Ariechek, um, was changed to Schlüsselberg at that point. And then really very quickly after Peter the Great took, um, finally took the fortress, its military function ceased and it became fa- you know, uh, a, a space for incarceration. And the first prisoners arrived there in 1711. 
And from then on, really, uh, apart from very short periods between 1711 and uh, the February Revolution of 1917, Schlüsselburg Fortress was used as a high security prison for Mm -hmm. Russia, some of Russia's most most, um, serious offenders, including um, state prisoners um, convicted of political crimes. So... It has a lot, you know, a, reason, you know, a long history of incarceration. The, the period I'm interested in, the period I've been looking at specifically in, in the book, is between 1884 and 1906. And what happened was having been used for sort of, uh, incarcerating um, political prisoners up till about 1870. The fortress actually fell out of use in the 1870s. And right. then the assassination of Alexander II in um, 1881, the decision was taken to, to, to sort of bring the fortress back into use as a prison and a new prison was built uh, on the island for the revolutionaries uh, who were convicted, mm-hmm. who were arrested and convicted um, uh, following the assassination of the Tsar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this upgrade that you talk about, because in the period that you're covering, uh, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's it's a period of modernization within the prison complex system. And there's also this larger context, which I hope you could speak about with the political trials. So the trial of the 14, the trial of the 17, the trial of the 193 or the trial of the 20, as, as they, as they're all sort of called, um, could, could you give us that sense of context maybe and, and, and tell us what was happening in say the late seventies to, to the early eighties when the, when it, it gets this upgrade? So I think there are two areas of different areas of context here. One is the sort of the carceral history in which we might actually place Schlüsselberg in a sort of wider history of what's going on in carceral reform in Europe and the United States even, where you're particularly with the Eastern State Penitentiary uh, in Pennsylvania and in um, England with Pentonville Prison. Uh, already early in the 19th century, you've got this move to single cell, solitary confinement, and you silent, very harsh regimes that are sort of associated with the, the ideas of you know, make, force, forcing prisoners to sort of contemplate their crimes and come to sort of repentance, um, and and the sort of the type of total surveillance that we see. In you know, so particularly uh, identified by Michel Foucault in Discipline and Punish, that's associated with these very harsh regimes. So on the one hand, Schlüsselberg's new prison, you know, so is is part of that process that's going on elsewhere, and certainly it was a sort of it was a huge change for the Russian penal system, which is very much based on um, communal incarceration and the sort of exile incarceration that involves sending people vast different distances across Siberia and and sort of Mm -hmm. isolating them through distance. Um, And Schlüsselberg brings the prisoners back into very close surveillance, both in terms of the prison itself and in terms of its proximity to Petersburg. So there are lots and lots of um, inspections from higher officials. So it's, 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 it fits into that 
that context of the modernization of prisons in the 19th century that was happening in many places. But at the same time, this type of extremely harsh, isolated regime was in fact very similar to what had already been going on in Schlüsselburg for the last uh, 150 years, uh, mm. and particularly you know, in, in in the early earlier 19th century, with uh, you know, prisoners like uh, I mean, the, the the record holder for, for Schlüsselburg was the Polish freedom fighter Valerian Lukasinski, who spent 38 years in solitary confinement in in, in wow. the fortress, which is it's just unimaginable. So so th- there's already this long history of of very harsh solitary regime in the prison. On the one hand, it's a sort of it's a, it's a modernization. There's a process of modernization, but also sort of actually con- continuity with the old system. Yeah, I I think I think you answered the question perfectly, and and that's where I where I would like to go with the content of of your book. So could could you tell our our listeners and and our readers to who your characters are? Um, so you have. Four chapters. You have an introduction, which I think is marvelous, on surviving Schlüsselberg and writing resistance. Um, I love the appendix at the end, by the way. I, I think this is incredible as, as a kind of prosopography for all the inmates from 1884 to 1906. And, and, and you give this impression that the 38-year sentence was extraordinary. I, I get the sense that the prisoners who were there on the average were there for a much shorter amount of time. But I, the meat of your book, if you will, is is the three chapters on Wolkenstein, Aschenbrenner, and Pankratov. And I wonder if you could introduce these people and these writers um, to us. Who who were they, and what drew you to their writings? So the prisoners who were incarcerated between eighteen eighty eight. 1884 and 1906, were, all, were populist revolutionaries who were convicted in the years following the assassination of Alexander um, II and, 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 the, and, and the rounding up of the remaining members of the people's will. So, uh, so there, were th- sorry, there were 68 prisoners in the fortress, of whom roughly half uh, died uh, most of them very quickly because conditions were so so terrible and of the of the survivors a large number more than half of the survivors wrote memoirs so i i started this process of reading these memoirs coming to them via vera figner's very famous memoir memoirs of a revolutionist and and you sort of gradually realise that this was actually an extraordinary body of work. It's so rare to get this um, a set of memoirs by so many, such a large proportion of, of of the prisoners telling this sort of you know, this complete story of of their experience there. And I eventually chose three memoirs for the book. Um, and in a way, they sort of came to me. It came to me overnight that I should use these three. And then I sort of looked at reasons for not mm. to use them. But, <laughs> but I, I, I that decided was, I was right. That's, that's a perfect answer. Yeah. So it was. I mean, you had an enormous amount of literature, right? And there was a process of exclusion. But like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. So it, it finally, you know, made you decide on these these three Kakrish Kakrishili. <laughs> I mean, first of all, uh, Ludmilla Volkenstein. I couldn't leave her out. Because uh, there are so, I mean, there were only two women 
who were long-term prisoners in the fortress, Vera Figner, who was there uh, from 1884 to 1904, and Ludmila Volkenstein, who arrived at the same time as Figner and was was a, a, um, one of the um, defendants in the same trial, the trial of the 14 as Figner. And she was transferred out of the prison in 1896 um, and sent to Sakhalin Island mm-hmm. as an exile. So, you know, th- we have so few memoirs by women prisoners and by women revolutionaries. It, you know, it's just, it just seemed, you know, it, it would have been extraordinary to leave that out. Um, and it, it, uh, apart from that, she was also the first of the prisoners to write about the fortress because she was one of the, one of the, f- the, f- the first group to be transferred out in 1896. And, and, uh, and her memoir was published in, first published in 1900. So, you know, as, as the first memoir and a, a memoir by a woman, I had to, I had to include I also really felt that she'd been forgotten by you. Know, she's, if, if she's remembered at all, it's as, as this sort of sidekick to Figner, which is mm. really unfair. I think you know when you read the memoirs, you sort of realise that actually, you know, I mean, Vera Figner, I think for for most many of the prisoners, was this sort of huge, this extraordinary guiding light, a sort of you know, a real moral centre for them. But I think Figner, you know, talks about um, Wolkenstein in exactly the same terms. And she, you know, she, she also sort of uh, you know, played that role for the other prisoners, I think. So, so it was important. It was really important to include her. Also, she, you know, a very interesting character from the point of view of how she came to the revolutionary movement. She was a young, a young wife and mother. Her right. husband was a Ziemstvo doctor. He uh, was a, uh, a defendant in the trial of the one nine three, and uh, who'd been in, uh, taken part in the going to the people movement in the eighteen seventies, been arrested for propaganda activities. He was acquitted, but it sort of that that experience radicalised Wolkenstein, and she joined the revolutionary movement. Um, so she's yeah, she's an interesting figure in her own right. My second memoir is by Michael Aschenbrenner, who's one of the members of the military centre of the People's Will, a guards officer. Um, he came from a sort of Russified German background and of, from the nobility and became sort of interested in socialist ideas through uh, attending university lectures lectures, and then uh, got involved in a reading circle and so on. And his memoir, I, I love his memoir because it's so rich in detail. It tells us so much about the fortress and about the, the particularly about the intellectual work that the that the prisoners did once they once they were sort of freed from the the worst aspects of solitary confinement that characterised the first years. Um, and you know, he, he you know, he really sort of he, he sort of characterises the uh, life in the fortress as a, a as a sort of sociological experiment he's you know he's really interested in the types of behaviors the group behaviors that that exist amongst the amongst the prisoners so he's talking about all the all the all the work they're doing um, uh, whether that's you, you translating translating books that they're reading learning new foreign languages or working on allotments but he's also sort of thinking about it in terms of what it tells you about the sort of types of behaviour that that you that you see in the fortress. And so I thought that w- that was really worth worth including you know, just because of its real richness of the of the content matter. The final memoir is by Vasily Pankratov, and it's just it's just extraordinary. And Pankratov's re- you know, he was the youngest prisoner. And he was one of the few from a 
very ordinary poor workers background uh you know a lot of the prisoners were from the from the nobility but Pankratov was very much not from that background he was you know he was a worker who got involved got involved in the revolutionary movement um, and he you know whilst in prison you know, for him it was you know sort of his chance to be really become really well educated which he which he wasn't before but and his writing is just incredibly lively and and almost actually funny in places which is not what you expect from from from, <laughs> from this subject matter but he's you know, he gives a real sense of the dramas that they went through you know, and he, 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 there's there's lots of lots of dialogue lots of lots of action uh yeah, um, I was I was curious to ask you perhaps if you could talk a little bit about the everyday kind of Altaksgeschichte, the everyday life of the prisoners, and um, what kind of regimes that they had in solitary confinement, what what they read, what they were fed, those sorts of things. The everyday life of the prisoners uh, changed quite a lot as 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 time went on. In the early days, they were in absolute solitary confinement. Um, They were allowed out of their cells once a day for around 30 minutes exercise. Uh, They were not allowed to see any other prisoners during that exercise. They weren't allowed to talk to the guards. Um, And and when any of the higher authorities came came to visit, they were sort of, they stood behind the the authorities, including the prison commandants and the, the superintendent of the guards, always stood behind two sentries so that they were separated from the prisoners. Prison authorities, when they spoke to the prisoners, would always refer to them in the familiar form T. They would never use V. And they would never allow the prisoners to talk about any other prisoners. They always said, you, you, there is nobody else here as far as you're concerned. Uh, so they were sort of in, this, in this, these conditions of extraordinary solitary confinement, no contact with the outside world, effectively no contact with their guards either. And in the early days, they weren't given any work at all. They had no means of occupation. They weren't barely given any reading material. If they were given reading material, it was some uh, religious tracts, which were interesting to some some of the prisoners, perhaps, but quite often you know, to, to, to many of them, not at all. And the idea was that they would sit and you would know, contemplate their sins and um, uh, change change their ways. This was a life of extraordinary monotony, uh, with with nothing to to relieve it in cells that were they were bright and clean uh they had plum toilets which was actually quite extraordinary and you know another way in which the prison was very modern for its day um, but they were um extremely small there was barely any room to um exercise in them sometime it's not and it's not clear in the memoirs exactly when this happened but at some point the corners of the cells nearest the door were blocked off with bricks so the stu- so that the prisoners couldn't hide from the um from from the guards all the doors had eye holes in them, and the guards would they they wore soft boots so that they couldn't be heard in the corridor, so that they could eye on the prisoners without giving them any warning. Although, given that the prisoners had nothing to do, it's not not clear quite what they was what they, what they were supposed to be spying on. The, the cells were incredibly cold, about ten de- uh, oh, ten degrees. F- Oh gosh, that's ten degrees centigrade. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry. Celsius. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's that's cold. That's cold. <laughs> yes, um, and the food was dreadful. The, the the amount spent on food was tiny and it was practically inedible uh, and all the memoirs you know, um, comment on this. Yeah. So the, so conditions in the first days were really, really pretty bad and many of the, many of the prisoners died very quickly. But one thing that sort of really sort of changed how their everyday life worked was the ability to communicate by knocking on the walls using the Russian prison alphabet, which is famous from you, mm-hmm. many people have read about this. Best, the Bestuchev, right? Was the yes. was he was he the inventor of, of the tapping system? I, he, I don't remember. He was indeed, yes, and it it appears in his memoir. Uh, he was uh, one of the Decembrists. <laughs> many of the Decembrists spent a few months in Schlüsselburg in 1827 uh, before being sent to um, before being sent to Siberia. Vestuzhev was one one of them and it was indeed he who invented this system in Schlüsselburg prison itself. And then you it's it's written about in so many memoirs including of of the um, Stalin period and the Gulag. Um, So it's it's something that's sort of quite quite famous and and, and really and and the prisoners in Schlüsselburg once they were able to to, um, to communicate this way, it was impossible at first because they were um, occupying every other cell of the of the forty prison forty prison cells in the block. Uh, they were f- at first arranged so that they couldn't tap on the walls to each other, but gradually the prison filled up, and they were and they were actually able to communicate. They immediately started tapping on the walls. They were punished at first, but it gradually. It gradually just became normal for them to do that, and and gradually the the, the punishment stopped basically basically because they couldn't punish all of them at the same time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Right. That's that's an important lesson, I would say. I mean, in 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 the communal experience that you described so well, right? The, the the actually power or agency that a lot of the prisoners had and and I guess you know I'm sorry to interrupt but I was thinking that in in this communication system that you described really well the prisoners must have realized this quickly and then the guards began to look the other way seeing that there was nothing that they could do right that's, yeah that's exactly right so so the the, the guards essentially punishment involved being taken to the punishment cells in the old prison, but there were only 10 cells in the old prison. Um, so there wasn't any way of punishing uh, the, the, the prisoners effectively. And, and again, this is this is one of the sort of lessons of this. You know, if you have a, a regime that is so extraordinarily harsh that a lot of the prisoners just felt, you know, actually... If that was to continue, there was nothing left worth living for, and and it was either die a, a slow and miserable death, which is 
frankly, what happened to, to, to many of them, or you fight back and accept that they won't be able to punish you all the time. And that is indeed what happened. So eventually they, they, they describe tapping on the walls as you know, so becoming a right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that established communications that sort of made them into a community. And mm-hmm. even though you know, they, they, they talk about this incredibly laborious system of tapping out each individual letter with a number of a number of taps according to where it appears on a on this little grid for each letter but nevertheless they you know they, they had extensive communications conversations they played chess via mm, via right, this system right. they, they exchanged poetry you know, so they so they were you know, they had time on their hands they could do you know they had nothing to do except tap so it didn't matter if it took a long time Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, I remember this is completely anecdotal, but the first time that I read um, Ginsburg's memoir, how how amazed I was with the story of poetry and, and memorization and her power of imagination in, in remembering, you know, Pushkin. I, I, I just, um, in reading a lot of the, these memoirs, I, I was struck by their stories of the journals that they acquired and the the books that that they managed to secure and and as you say it, one can get tired of reading the bible or these you know like what they're fed in in terms of like the moral transformation literature um i was i was you know especially astounded when they're kind of demanding just really or, ordinary pieces of literature history things that weren't in the prison library and and I, I wonder if you could if you could say a little bit about that because there there's certainly this transformation as you describe from alienated subjectivity however you might call it into a more of a communal life and, and a communal cause so yeah they 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 have gradually established this communal life via tapping on the walls and then later sort of they, the 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 regime was relaxed i think you know, this was a process of the, you know, the prison authorities realizing that if they carried on with this incredibly harsh regime, eventually, you know, there would be nobody left to um, for them to guard, and so they had to sort of allow the prisoners a sort of a more re- relaxed regime. So they gave them work, they gave them allotments, and they, you know, this inevitably led to more more interaction between the prisoners and the, them being able to see each other. So sort of relaxing that 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 system of solitary confinement and a big part of that uh, of, of their activity once they uh, uh, um, once the, the regime had been relaxed was their intellectual work so they were yeah they were they, they, they depict the library and the books that they were allowed to read as a constant battleground they're always trying mm-hmm. to get Better, right. better reading material. When they started, yes, there's a, there's a few religious books. Then they're allowed history books, but mostly of the ancient world, and certainly nothing, nothing after the 18th century. And they, they're sort of constantly trying to get better, more interesting books, more varied books. They, they, they uh, eventually are allowed to subscribe to journals, and they're sort of reading. They're getting things in different languages and learning languages, and then tra- translating books so that their their, their sort of fellow prisoners can read things in in uh, from languages they don't understand. And they they 
uh, you know, sort of, it's, it's a sort of real, real flourishing of activity in all sorts of fields. Obviously, you know, they're very interested in politics and, and sociology and you're know, sort of eager to get material on, on those subjects. It's not always allowed. And again, they're always fighting for these things. But you know, and, and when they get access to books and journals, they're also, there's also a sort of real flourishing of their own writing. They're, they're writing journals, uh, producing journals themselves, writing articles about contemporary situation and, um, and uh, producing literary works as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I also, this is a completely different question, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about those who survived. So I, I guess, you know, this is part of my interest in, in Holocaust memoirs and, and survivors memoirs. And I, I translated, you know, sources over 300 of them for the US, US Holocaust Museum. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I guess what you have in your you know final list of people are a mix of those who died, um, many of them in 1886 or 1887. And then, you know, people like Pankratov, whose memoirs you have, who actually live very long lives despite all of their um, ailments and experiences. And, and I guess my question for you is, on the one hand, you know, um, what's, what's the difference in memory between those who live long lives to tell the story and then those who can't really speak or, or maybe even who've died in the prison? I think there's a real effort in the memoirs by those who survived to give space for the memory of those who did not. The, the, there's a real sort of sense of them try, you're trying to record those lives as part, of, uh, as part of their own memoirs. The memoirs are very much a collective effort. There's, sort of, there's a very little sense of the individuals. It's not, these aren't really individual memoirs of imprisonment. They are, they are about the collective that emerged in the prison. And mm-hmm. that, I think, in that they include the people who died. And even if they can't, you know, they, they, there's sort of very little say about them. Some of them, in some cases, they do manage to say quite a lot. I mean, for instance, one of the ways that you know, uh, we see them is coming into... Uh, into the memoirs of the survivors, you know, their, their voices appear to tell about experiences that that the, mem- the memoirists didn't undergo. You know, for example, you know, Pankratov arrived. Uh, he was one of the last to arrive in 1884, around uh, you know, right at the end of the year. And his opening chapter actually sort of he, he brings in the voices of two of the prisoners who who died, Dmitry Putsinsky, who 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 died very quickly. I think he was one of the ones who died in 1886, and Nikolai Pohitonov, who's one of the ones who eventually was transferred from the prison uh, to a psychiatric institution uh, right. and, di- and died there. And you know, they they tell you know, they're depicted telling the other prisoners how they felt when they first arrived. They thought that they 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 thought that the uh, as they were being transferred from the Peter and Paul fortress that they were going to be drowned. That that mm. was the, that was the the aim. Mm-hmm. They, they had these fetters on so they could drown them in the Neva. Um, and so so and it's a sort of form of uh, it's what Barbara Mitzal calls. Um, um, mnemonic, mnemonic, sorry, I can't say the word. Mnemonic community in which you know, the, the the later members of the community are sort of brought into those stories told by the older members. 
And it's something that you see in, late, in, in for example, in um, Grigory Gershuni's memoir as well, when he, he comes into the prison very much later in 1884, sorry, 1904. But he also, in his first chapter, describes that, uh, that history of the last 20 years. And the, he talks about the people who died, who he never met. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, but he, he's getting that history from the survivors. At that point, so so it's sort of they 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 see themselves as this community, and and that that focus on memory of those who didn't survive is really important. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you think in putting Russia into a larger context of prison memoir literature and and carceral carceral geography, because I I, I you know I'm really fascinated by this field. Um, that there are ways to understand the, the persistence of this communal culture, for lack of a, a better description. I mean, it, it does seem to be a, like the revolutionary cause or plural causes well after the revolutionary years are over. And now I'm really putting words in your mouth, but, um, but it, just as a provocation, I mean, what, what, what is there to write about for carceral geography? I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you have so many people of so many different walks of life imprisoned in this one fortress and multi-ethnic and multi-confessional and, and everything in between. So what, what could the Russian experience offer to, to that larger world of study? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. On the one hand, Schlosselberg is, is sort of, on the one hand, it's, it's you a unique place in in the Russian context, but on the other hand, it sort of also speaks to a lot of wider issues within sort of Russian uh, incarceration, the Russian penal system, which is why your your Vera Figner's memoir in particular became so you had so so much resonance for later generations of prisoners. On the other hand, you, there is this there is this sense also of Schlüsselberg mirroring something that we have seen uh, elsewhere, and really, you know, you know the, the the main sources of comparison I found that I think I think really resonate here with the uh, political prisoners of uh, the apartheid regime um, in South mm. Africa and Robben Island, and the, again, political prisoners uh, uh, in Northern Ireland in the Maze prison in, in Belfast. Uh, mm-hmm. So it is this, this sense of community and, and shared, shared identity uh, that is, I think, the sort of... The, the most significant sort of source of source of comparison, and you know, the, the, I think particularly on Robben Island, you've got the same type of uh, isolation from the outside world um, that you know, you, a, a sort of an island fortress prison can 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 bring, and I'm sure that's actually same as something that we might see if we compared it with some American examples, but not political prisons. Well, Guant- Guantanamo comes to mind, Absolutely. right? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and and I actually I really like that idea of comparisons. I was thinking about Padre Kenny's um, Dance in Chains um, a, as an example, and and I wondered if you could maybe um, recommend both primary and secondary sources. So I, I'm thinking, you know, first in terms of when we began the conversation about Vera Figner and and maybe some of the correctives. Um, 
one could imagine, especially like, you know, it, I, I mean, adding gender analysis would, would be one path forward, um, Judith Pallet's work and things like that. But both in terms of primary and secondary sources, and, and I think our New Books Network listeners will be curious about this, what, what sort of things might you recommend? Okay, I suppose secondary sources first. I'd recommend Daniel Beer's House of the Dead, you know, his, his, his history of, of Siberian imprisonment and exile, just, just for a sort of really sort of a long view of the imperial prison system that really sort of covers, you know, so, you know, so much. And, and I think sort of it, it's important for various reasons, including its, its, its emphasis. Uh, he has a real focus on the Polish prisoners from mm-hmm. both the 1830s and the 1860s, which is something that uh, they, they don't tend to appear as a, as a, a focus of literature on, on Siberia in the imperial era. So I'd recommend that. And then again, you mentioned Judith Palo and her work, also the work of Laura Piacentini on Russian mm, prisons, both contemporary and historical. You know, they're, 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 they are sort of re- you know, really important writers who's, uh, and, and researchers you know, who are doing incredible stuff. And uh, Judith Palo's um, new project, uh, Gulag Echoes, as well, you know, sort of you know, has that sort of emphasis on the sort of continuities of the system. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't tend to sort of realise. And I think you sort of sort of, yeah, uh, that. What we see in the Russian prison system now has so many continuities with the you know, with the Soviet era, and that had so many continuities with the with the imperial imperial era as well. So we can you know, look at what's happening today and trace it trace its connections back to the 1830s and the and the Decemberists, the 1850s and Dostoevsky in prison. There's, a, you, there's an awful lot that's still very similar. Primary sources, I'd always recommend Dostoevsky's House of the Dead. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> um, you fell into my trap. Yeah, I'm sure I did, yeah. Uh, what else have I got to say? It's, yeah, it, it's, it's you know, the starting point for so, you know, so much of this topic. And he, you know, he's, you know, his analysis is, you know, is really of the sort of the moral aspect of imprisonment. Right. What it does to human beings is really, you know, sort of you know, something something that I, I I don't think I don't think has been bettered even today. I mean, people have written different things, mm. but and I think one of the things that's really interesting for me about how the Schlosselberg prisoners write about the prison and what they did contributed to Russian prison writing is that Dostoevsky is very very much emphasizing this moral question: you have the you have the human being in prison. For the Schlosselberg prisoners, it's the state acting against the individual. That's what's mm-hmm. real, or indeed the state acting against the people per se, um, and that's that idea of the state as immoral, as corrupt, mm-hmm. is a really, really powerful yeah. one. Yeah, 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 and and I, you know, I'm thinking, of course, in our age of of Zoom and the pandemic, um, what it what it took for you, I guess, you know, both like physically and emotionally to write a book like this, and and you know, I, I wonder if you could if you could say something about that you were in the finishing finishing stages of this i know and you know this is a lead in of course to plug your current project which uh, i hope you could uh, explain i mean what what the history of prison with all these continuities um means to you and what kind of research you're doing 
revising the book for publication, you're all, you're, all that happened during the pandemic. And it really was, you know, it changed how I, how I viewed the book as I was going along. Not that I sort of, you know, sort of viewed the uh, sort of the sort of isolation of the pandemic as you know, anything comparable to, 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 to what the prisoners experienced. But, you know, Ludmilla Wolkenstein at one point does say that, you know, so, you know, anybody who's experienced quarantine in hospital or that type of isolation has a sort of intimation of what it means to be in solitary confinement. And, you know, as, as somebody who was, was shielding because I'm extremely clinically vulnerable and, you know, sort of didn't see other people, you know, outside my house for, Many months. It was a sort of, you know, a sort of a, a, you know, an insight into that type of experience that I really wasn't expecting, and that really sort of brought home to me some of you, know, so, you know, how how psychologically draining and challenging yeah. that that is. So it's sort of you know, this is something that was really a you know, sort of a, a new experience for me, but it sort of. It fed into a sort of long-standing interest in in carceral literature, Russian carceral literature, and my wider project, which is you know, uh, I'm sort of my 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 you know, I am primarily a literary scholar. My my interest sort of started in this topic by by coming across a copy of Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago on my parents' bookshelf, and you know, in the context of Lostness hearing about prisoners like Anatoly Marchenko and um, mm, Irina Ratushinskaya. Right. Uh, but it's always been, you know, for me, the memoirs, uh, you know, how people write about this type of experience, how they think about where they fit into the tradition of prison writing in, in, in Russia and sort of look back to their predecessors and, you know, and, and indeed, you know, how... Russian literature developed, and this again goes back to Dostoevsky. You know, became you know, the flourishing of Russian prison writing sort of developed alongside the flourishing of Russian literature more generally, and it is you know, has always been a very very strong theme within uh, within Russian literature. And so it just you know, I, I started you know, what I didn't what didn't seem to be a very particularly ambitious project. When I started, but then I, I realized it's actually a huge yeah, project. Exactly. Well, look, look, Sarah, I mean, you're writing a canon and then, yeah. I mean, it's nothing less than that. You're writing a canon and then you're revising a canon. This is a, a project that could be thousands and thousands mm. of pages. Absolutely. Exactly. And it's a project that doesn't end because, you know, as I, as I realized when I started it and when I first sketched out the, the, the book that I'm still writing, the epilogue on post-Soviet in incarceration and writing of the writing of that is quite short and it isn't anymore because mm. every, every you know there's a, there's a whole new body of literature that has appeared in the last 10-15 years that's that you've both looked back on previous you know, the previous experience of incarceration and, and and the literature of that that era you know most recently so books like uh, Zuleika and Hamid Ismailov's The Devil's Dance, which really I mm. thought was a profoundly exciting book. So there's you know, there's there's that sort of work that look, looking back to the Soviet era, and there's you know there's there's, there's writing of by more recent prisoners as well. Mm -hmm. When, and and one could bring it up, I'm sure 
to the president with Sensoff and and Navalny and Pussy Riot and, uh, and others, I, I guess you know where to stop would be a, an, an, another question, right? I mean, where would you stop? <laughs> well, I haven't yet. It's the to that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and on, on, on that note, I think this is a good place to stop. So, I, I this was a real pleasure talking with you. And um, the current monograph, I'll just mention what you're working on in, is provisionally entitled Russia's carceral text, right? Dostoevsky, yes. Shalomov, and, and beyond on labor camp narratives. Am, am I right about that? Yes, yes. And that's, so So that is, that is a work in progress. Uh, and you know, writing, writing resistance did sort of interrupt that. Uh, um, so I shall be going back to, back to finishing that off, I hope soon. Excellent. Um, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, cool. Thank you so much. Um, we've been speaking here on New Books Network uh, with our guest today on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Our guest is Dr. Sarah J. Young. The book that she's written, and I congratulate Sarah, is called Writing Resistance, Revolutionary Memoirs of Schlüsselberg Prison. This is published by University College of London Press 2021. It's also available at Open Access. And thank you so much for for joining me, Sarah, here today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books Network. Until next time.